I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of uh, research on uh, the banking industry and the economy in general. And, you know, we're getting hit from all sides. Uh, the inflation uh, that uh, brought all this on was really a direct, it could be directly tied to the COVID lockdown. And we've always said that uh, that the COVID lockdown and the COVID mandates and the COVID reaction to the plan the pandemic cannot and should not be worse than the virus itself, the COVID SARS CoV two virus, uh, which is probably a bioweapon, and we're finding out more and more about that as well. We're finding out how Fauci. Uh, knew about a couple of known laws uh, that uh, prevented him from greenlighting ivermectin because this was this was a crisis that just like uh, all the other crises, the Democrats choose to exploit them instead of doing the right thing. Um, they choose to profit from them, and uh, we're going to go into a lot of these things today. COVID was the the foundation of our economic collapse. Uh, And this was in the wake of a beautiful two and a half years, three years of Trump's economy, where the labor participation rate was as strong as it's been in forever. And uh, women were back to work. Black people were back to work. Everybody was back to work. And... The border was being secure. The wall was being built. All these promises were being... ISIS was defeated. And the oil in Iraq was being monitored and and controlled by our military in Iraq. All things that people like Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romney and the whole host of bandits from the left 
didn't want to have happen because it was a gravy train. And now we have the precipice of World War III. We have the uh, arms race because Russia got out of the smart missile treaty. And so now the military industrial complex is back in full business. And the oil distribution channels are being propped back up. We're going back to rewarding Palestinians and Iranian terrorists all to destabilize areas of and regions that enable our politicians to get into a pay-to-play scheme. It's pathetic. But the COVID lockdown, the COVID lockdown was a bad, bad decision. Because when we remove the restrictions, when the virus is finally gone, people had so much money. They weren't going out and spending it on restaurants. They weren't spending their money at the bars. They weren't able to socialize. You know, there's a, there's a cost to socialization. You know, I mean, uh, to being social. To go into plays and go into the theater and go into the concerts and going to uh, the fancy restaurants. Right. There's a lot of money that gets put into the economy just from that alone. And during the lockdowns, all of that was bottled up. As I mentioned yesterday, I like it's like it's like a, that phrase from the uh, they get from the drunken sailor. Sailor goes off. He's away for six months. And next thing you know, he gets into port and he gets his big paycheck from six months of working and not being able to spend a dime because he's on a boat working. And he comes in, he's got a big wad full of money, and he buys himself a good time. And that's where that saying comes from. Well, we were all drunken sailors, maybe, in that way, right? We were all bottled up. We were all on a ship away from port. And we saved a lot of money. And when restrictions were lifted, we spent a lot of money. And we spent a lot of money without the supply chain because, you know, that's also what happened with the chips, the chips uh, shortage, because chips are technology. Uh, they put a hold on chip, chip orders. And then next thing you know, when people got, got uh, out of COVID, they started to buy cars and, and they started to press the uh, economy. And the supply chain buckled, couldn't not take the stress and the pressure. And, and it didn't help that the Democrats were also issuing trillions of dollars in stimulus checks. So the money was being put onto the demand side without the supply chain uh, being invested in. So you had more demand and less supply and you ca- it caused inflation. In an unprecedented way. And Trump was against that. And they're trying to blame Trump now. They're trying to blame Trump for this. Just like they're trying to blame Trump for the open the border security. They're trying to blame Trump for this. It's, it's insane. They tried to blame Trump for the East Palestine train collapse. Even though the scientists or the uh, experts said no. It had nothing to do with the brakes or whatever it was. But they're trying to blame Trump for everything. And the media being so corrupt and so crooked, you know, it, it's, it's no wonder that the Biden administration 
would rely on the media because the media is just another arm of the propaganda machine that comes out of a rigged rigged uh, election and and a rigged uh, administration, a corrupt administration. And again, we wouldn't have election fraud if we had good prosecutors, if we had good DAs, if we had good investigators. We would not have the election fraud. But because people commit election fraud and they get away with it, it's, it's no wonder we have it. You know, there's something to that thing where Soros is spending millions of dollars on these district attorney's races. And he's spending millions of dollars on the district attorney's races so that when the elections ha- uh, rigging happens, the district attorneys sit on their hands and don't prosecute. They have better fish to fry, like Republicans. They're breaking down the doors of Republicans and Christians and turning a blind eye to the election fraud because it's all one big thing. The people that get elected write uh, all kinds of uh, laws and, and that are helpful to the corruption. So you can't have the election fraud without the rigged enforcement uh, arm of the law. And the enforcement arm of the law is being bought up and controlled by George Soros and the Soros-backed candidates. Kim Fox comes to mind from Chicago, but there's so many. Um, the guy from Philadelphia, Krasner, you know, and uh, all of these candidates, you say, wow, they, they were given... It, they they were given $2 million in a $600,000 race or a race, an election that should have cost about $600,000. They got $2 million. How could you lose in a small town race like that? So all of this stuff happened. And you have the Hunter Biden uh, crime. And yesterday I said to you that we were going to play the James Comer part of the interview with Maria Bartiroma, and that's what we're going to do now. So we're going to go ahead and get started with Hunter Biden. Incidentally, Bob Alinsky, the guy that's been on Fox News and the guy that was a business partner of Hunter Biden, has been subpoenaed to appear before the Oversight Committee. That should be interesting. So let's take a listen to James Comer from Kentucky talking to Maria about the Biden investigation couple of weeks since we've spoken and you've been digging in on the business of the Biden family. What have you learned? Well, we've had a very good two weeks, Maria. We are finally having people cooperate with us. I think we all know the Biden administration stonewalling. Janet Yellen Yellen is stonewalling, not turning over the the bank violations. But fortunately, since we've last spoken, we actually have bank records in hand. We have individuals who are working with our committee. Uh, In the last two weeks, we've met with either these individuals personally or with their attorneys. Uh, And that would be four individuals who had uh, ties in with the Biden family on their various schemes around the world. So now we have in hand documents that show just exactly how the Biden family was getting money uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. And, And I will tell you, it's as bad as we thought, Maria. It's very concerning. And and in a way, 
I'm kind of glad that the, the Biden attorney, Abby Lowell, and the Biden administration has been stonewalling us because when I requested that information two weeks ago versus today because of what we have in hand now, uh, we have a lot stronger case in court for why we need these documents that the Biden family is withholding and that the government's withholding. So they have unintentionally helped our case in our quest to, to get these documents to where we can give the American people the truth and the transparency that they deserve uh, yeah. out of the, their leadership in Washington. Congressman, this is so extraordinary. This is the number one adversary of America. And you're telling us that the Biden family has accepted money. What does the CCP have on the Biden family? And is that the reason for the soft approach on China? We will slip in a short break. And then I want to get your take on what you are expecting uh, out of that upcoming hearing of the Oversight Committee. Stay with us. We're talking with Congressman James Comer this morning. Back with the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman James Comer. Congressman, talk to us about Kathy Chung. She's coming in to get deposed by your committee. What are you expecting? Well, we're going to have a transcribed interview with Ms. Chung. Uh, we have a lot of questions about her role in moving documents. We all know now that Joe Biden had uh, mishandled classified documents in at least five different locations. Uh, we know from text messages and emails she got the job to help uh, with uh, the Biden family and moving documents at the recommendation of Hunter Biden. Uh, given Hunter Biden's uh, what we see from bank records and, and from the emails and text messages with all the influence peddling he's done, we wonder why was Hunter Biden so concerned about Joe Biden's documents? So uh, we have a lot of questions for Ms. Chung, and she's fortunately going to come in voluntarily, and uh, okay. we'll have an opportunity to hopefully get some answers. Tell me about the bank records. Uh, Mr. Chairman, what have you learned from these bank records that you've gotten? These are Hunter Biden's bank records? These are these are people affiliated with uh, the different uh, businesses, so to speak, uh, that the Biden family w was involved in with respect to this instance, China. And what it appears is there were a lot of transfers from account to account to account, many transfers on the same day. Uh, that's probably one reason they received so many suspicious activity reports, which are the bank violations for the banks. The banks would look at this like well, they must be laundering money or something. I don't necessarily think they were laundering money, Maria. It looks to me like they were trying to hide the source of that money, and the source was the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, my question to the Bidens when I get that opportunity is, if you're conducting legitimate business activities, uh, why so many transfers? Why, why wow. were you trying to uh, hide the source of that money? Uh, we know why. <laughs> they, were they were hiding their source. Meanwhile, uh, here's an interesting um, tidbit from Robert Kennedy Jr., he says, if Tony Fauci or anybody had admitted that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin are effective against COVID, it would have been illegal for them to give the, the emergency use authorization to the vaccines. And they could have never gotten that approved, them approved. Let's take a listen. Tony Fauci's problem is this. There is a little known federal law that says... You cannot give an emergency use authorization to a vaccine if there is a medica any medication approved for any purpose that is shown effective against the target disease. So if Tony Fauci or anybody had admitted that hydroxychloroquine 
or ivermectin are effective against COVID, it would have been illegal for them to give the emergency use authorizations that to the vaccines, and they could never have gotten them approved. And it would have been a, you know, a $200 billion enterprise that would have collapsed. Um, that is fascinating. I mean, I, I have been covering this very closely now for all of the two years. That's the first I've heard that, that I mean, I, in your book. Um, so he would not have gotten emergency use authorization for the vaccine if it if the medical community had been saying ivermectin works. It is an effective treatment for covid. Well, the medical community, a lot of it was saying that. I mean, there's 17000 doctors who've signed a petition and there yeah. are you know, there are so many peer reviewed publications now that consistently say that, but he had to aggressively crusade against it to kind of drown out those reports by saying it's a horse medication, it's, you know, people are taking it and it's dangerous and it's overdosing people. And, you know, why did he keep saying it? Why Why did he keep saying it after he got his authorization? Well, one, even if you have the emergency use authorization, it's it. The law appears to say you can't have it anymore if there's a functioning medication. Mm. Oh, um, you know, that may be why. Mm. Again, I try try not to look in his head, but I do. There's a very, very strong incentive for him to kill ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, there there are many doctors, including Harvey Reich of Yale, who's one of the leading um, biostatisticians, epidemiologists in the in the world. Um, Peter McCulloch, who is the most published uh, doctor in the history of the world in his specialty. Um, Pierre Corey, um, these doctors who have treated tens of thousands of, uh, of COVID patients successfully. They consistently say, and the science supports this, that half a million Americans did not need to die. So there it is. Uh, they would have lost a $200 million business. Ivermectin, the truth, from legendary filmmaker Mickey Willis. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to play this, but it says there's a little-known federal law that says you cannot give an emergency use authorization to a vaccine if there is any medication approved for any purpose that is shown effective against the target disease. So if Tony Fauci or anybody had admitted that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin are effective against COVID, it would have been illegal for them to uh, give them uh, the emergency use authorization to the vaccines and they could never have gotten them approved. Huh. Very interesting. Very interesting. So Chairman Comer uh, just subpoenaed Hunter Biden's business partner, Tony Bobulinski. Here's a quick clip from uh, an audio tape exchange from Tony Bobulinski and Rob Walker. Tony, you're just going to bury us all, man. Uh, When he says, if he doesn't come out on record, I am providing the facts because they ripped off Tony Bobulinski. If he doesn't come out on record, I am uh, providing the fact. Tony, you're just going to just bury all of us, man. Yeah. So, so they, they, they screwed with the wrong guy. Bobulinski was angry because he was getting screwed out of money that was due him. He took the risk, and then they, they ripped him off. 
that's what was going on there. So we're going to get over to uh, finance. Uh, I have a lot. I have a lot of things uh, that um, are going to. Uh, uh, we'll go ahead and take this call really quick. Um, let's see. Uh, caller, you on the air? Hey, morning, Scott. Good morning. Uh, was that uh, was that Megan Kelly that was talking with uh, um, Kennedy? Yeah. Uh, did she actually say that she's been investigating this for over two years and never heard about that law? I, I don't. That's what she said. Yeah. That's what she said. She's never heard. I remember when it was first when when Trump first mentioned hydroxychloroquine that was the first thing that, that people were saying wait a minute you can't have emergency authorization if you have an effective treatment hmm. and she actually said that she's never heard that before yeah, it's pretty well documented i had another 13 minute clip i could have played uh that went into that in great detail i find that fascinating yeah yeah but that's uh yeah. that is the case i mean it that's what she said yeah we all heard it <laughs> All right. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Take care. Bye. All right. All righty. Well, um, we're going to get over to finance. And um, I said this. I said, Democrat COVID lockdowns and stimulus you know, spending created demand once restrictions were lifted, causing pressure on supply chains that lead to inflation that caused the Fed to raise rates that ultimately led to the current banking collapse, chip and auto shortage, and housing crisis. And, you know, remember, the inflation uh, numbers are going to come out today. The consumer price index are going to come out today. And what we're looking at is um, that under Biden, the inflation went up to 8.5%. Gas prices were over $6 a a gallon. And the middle class was getting crushed. And this was was the problem, is that the Fed needed to step in and raise the rates, cool the economy off, and cooled it off. But the economy, nothing about this economy really makes a lot of sense. By a lot of experts, this was the case. You know, and the banking crisis was one thing. Um, You know, the banking crisis, what happened was there, you have these, this inflation, then you have the Fed raising raising the, the rates. And then what happened there is when people would make a run on the bank and demand their, take, withdraw their deposits, um, you'd get smaller regional banks that would have to somehow sell off some of their assets, say it's a treasury. And say you say uh, they bought treasuries that were locked in at 1%. And when the prime rates are going up, when the rates are going up, uh, the next thing you know, the treasury bills that people could buy today are worth 5%. And so you say, well, I can get a treasury bill today for 5% if I buy it direct from the government. So trying to sell off your assets that you locked in at 1%, um, they're taking a huge loss because they're going to have to sell it on for pennies on the dollar. And that's what happened 
to a lot of these uh, banks that had to sell off some of their assets at a loss in order to make good on the payment of giving people their money back when they wanted to withdraw their deposits. And the same thing is true with the uh, cryptocurrency, but the cryptocurrency doesn't have the FDIC insurance. So the same thing is true with the cryptocurrency is that um, just a rumor can can cause people to withdraw their money and collapse a crypto overnight. And we saw that sort of play out with FTX. And then there's Silvergate, there's Signature. Um, and, uh, and, and now we have, you know, we see other banks also that are over leveraged and uh, don't have a good infrastructure plan set up. And they're saying it's not a bailout, but it in essence is. Um, HSBC uh, UK bought out the SVB UK ver- uh, portion of that. But yeah, so the, you know this, it all started from COVID, which caused the inflation, which caused the Fed rate hikes, which caused the banking collapse, and you know the chip shortages and the housing crisis. All of this is connected. It's all connected. No, it's not Peter Thiel or President Trump who is to blame for blank runs and SVB collapsing. It's because of Biden inflation forcing the Fed to raise interest rates. Our banking system is not designed to withstand the massive rate hikes we have seen under this regime. And so now the question is, in a couple of weeks, Will Jerome Powell put a halt to rate hikes, despite the fact that we have consumer price index numbers that are likely going to show inflation? And here is uh, Janet Yellen on in a committee hearing, and uh, Beth Van Dwine from Texas. I don't care that it's National Women's Month just because we are born with ovaries. Agree? My question is, what makes a woman special anymore Uh, when anyone can be a woman, right? Listen as she grills Secretary Yellen on everyone suffering from increased inflation. Let's take a listen to this. To find one woman is, I find it rich that some of my Democrat colleagues want to highlight International Women's Day uh, and go after as if we are supposed to go soft on the Secretary today. I'm going to demand that everybody treat us as equals, And don't demean us just because we were born with ovaries. I don't care if it is International Women's Month. It's disturbing that this administration continues to peddle the big lie that people making less than $400,000 are not paying more in taxes. You said it yourself this morning that people making less than $400,000 won't pay a penny more in new taxes. Not a penny more. And maybe you need to get out of D.C. more. Because a lot of us are paying more in new taxes. Let's just review a few. Income taxes. Wages have artificially increased. But because of inflation, the dollar value has actually decreased. So many people that are making less than $400,000 that saw wage increases are now paying more in income taxes, correct? Well, we don't have perfect Fuel taxes. Gas prices have increased from a national average of $2.35 when Biden took office to now $3.41 a gallon this week. So are people making $400,000 paying more in fuel taxes? More in fuel taxes? Correct. 
Yes. So sales taxes, groceries have increased by 12 percent. Eggs have increased by nearly 60 percent. Flour is up over 21 percent. Used cars are up over 9 percent. Are people making less than $400,000 paying more in sales taxes for simple things like food? Okay, ad valorem taxes. Housing prices have more than doubled in many markets around the country. A lot of times that's dependent on how, many, how much people are paying in ad valorem taxes. So would you agree that people making more than $400,000 and own a house are paying more in ad valorem taxes? Well, these, these are often state or local taxes. Oh, sure. But we're talking about, about taxes, and here's the problem. When you're stuck in D.C., we don't see beyond D.C. But people are being taxed to death and are absolutely sick of it. Absolutely. And uh, Janet Yellen is a bit out to lunch about this. Um, all right. So I want to <laughs> – I heard a really great clip. Now, President Trump gave a uh, – a, a wonderful speech in Davenport, Iowa, um, yesterday. Rock star. Lines around the block. Incredible. Bill Maher had a really good piece. It was pretty funny. But it made a lot of sense, too. Just take a listen to Bill Maher on his take on Trump and why liberals don't understand Trump supporters. Disagree with that. First of all, everything I hear about DeSantis is that he's dull he doesn't have any charisma. And also, I think, uh, I think liberals, they just, they, they make a real effort not to understand the Trump voter. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, DeSantis is going to be great because he's, it's Trumpism without Trump. And I think they're like, why would we want a tribute band <laughs> when the actual band yeah. is still playing? I thought that line was brilliant. Why would we want a tribute band when the actual band is still playing, right? Yeah, pretty good stuff. All right, so I um I have a, a couple of clips I, I want to play and share with you. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start with this this guy. This guy, I've, I love these little YouTube uh, channels where you get some really great wisdom. This guy was super smart. Um, about uh, about the economy and uh, and the housing market. Um, there's going to be one on the car market. There's going to be one on the housing market, and there's going to be one on the banking collapse uh, and how it connects with the you know uh, the interest rates. All right, so let's take a listen. Number one, interest rates over the last year interest rates have doubled. Your 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate went from 3% to around 6.5%. Let me give you an example how that would affect your monthly payment. Let's say you wanted to buy a $500,000 house. You're going to put 20% down, then you're going to go to a lender and borrow $400,000 to complete your purchase of your new home. Now, at a 3% interest rate, that $400,000 loan would cost you on a monthly basis around $1,700 a month. At a 6.5% interest rate, that same $400,000 loan is going to cost you around $2,500 per month. Big difference, guys. $800 a month 
payment difference. So that's going to affect affordability for most people, right? So home sales are going to suffer. And that's already happening. Since November, year over year, home sales are down by 35% because of interest rates doubling over the last year. Number two, consumer spending. And here's what I mean by consumer spending. Inflation. Right now, inflation is about 6.5%. All that means is over the last year, the goods and services that we use on a daily basis have went up in price by 6.5%. That eats into the average person's monthly budget for living, right? Food is more expensive. Gas is more expensive. Medical is more expensive, right? And, and we can't pay for everything. So it's going to hurt someone who's trying to go out and find a new home because their budget is going to be tighter because of inflation and having to pay six and a half percent more for the goods and services that they use every day. Number three, rising layoffs. If we look at some of the industries in our country, especially the tech industry, you can already see where they have laid off a lot of people. Even in the financial services industry, they've laid off a bunch of people. You gotta be careful guys, because more layoffs are coming. And I hate to see you go out and buy this new home, right? At this inflated interest rate, and you're paying more on a monthly basis, and money's coming out of your pocket, and then all of a sudden, your company lays you off. And the reason companies are starting to lay people off is because they're not growing. Investors are not investing money in companies right now, and companies are not growing. And when companies don't grow, they don't turn a profit. And when companies aren't turning a profit, they look at their expenses to see what they can cut. And the biggest expense for most companies is payroll, employees. So that's where they start. So be careful in 2023 with this volatile job market. And I know a lot of people might say, the labor market's strong. Trust me, guys, the labor market and layoffs, they lag the rest of the economy. They trail the rest of the economy. Number four, higher home prices. In the last two years, guys, from 2020 to 2022, home prices have went up by 40%. That's crazy. So not only am I paying 40% higher for a home than someone paid two years ago, on top of I'm paying double the interest rate. That's a double whammy, guys. Home prices are not going to start coming down in 2023. They're going to probably be flat or maybe even slight uptick. And the reason for that is because there's a lack of inventory when it comes to homes. Now, inventory will start ramping up, I believe, in 2023, 2024, 2025, because it's expected that 
there will be 1 million homes added to the market through new construction. But that takes time to ramp up. It won't all happen in 2023. We're going to still have low inventory in 2023, and that's going to prop up home prices. Most of these people who are selling their homes right now, they have 40 to 50% additional equity in that home because of the pandemic real estate boom. And there it is, the pandemic real estate boom. I want to get to another clip uh, as well. And um, th this is the same guy, different clip. Let's take a listen. 311,000 new jobs were added to the economy. So this is the talk about last week's jobs number, right? It was 100,000 more than expected. And this guy's like 311,000 new jobs. Economy in February 2023. Expectations were 205,000 jobs would be added to the economy in February. Well, needless to say, that number was blown away by the 311,000 new jobs. New job or new job openings where people have the ability to find work is not necessarily all a bad thing. But when you got inflation above 6% and we can't get people to stop spending money on things they don't need, then that's a problem for our economy. Really what we'd like to have is about 180,000 new jobs added, like we did from 2010 to 2019, when we had a really good economy, inflation was about 2%, and everything was humming right along and doing great. But with inflation at 6% and possibly could climb back to historical all-time highs of 9%, when we add 311,000 new jobs, that's not good. Because I've always told you guys, in this country, the more money we make, the more money we spend. And a lot of that is by design. 70% of our economy is fueled by consumer spending. So our economy depends on people taking their hard-earned money and buying things they really don't need. And that is hurting us from an inflationary standpoint, though. Because the people in our country, lower income folks, are starting to struggle because prices of our goods and services are up so high that they barely can afford the basic things they need to live. And that's where the Federal Reserve comes in. See, the Federal Reserve wants price stability. And price stability right now is not very good. Because like I said, low-income Americans are having a hard time buying their basic necessities. So the Fed jumps in and does what? They increase short-term interest rates, a.k.a. Fed funds rate, in an effort to try and deter people from borrowing money cheaply. And when they do that, they hope people will stop spending. The problem is... Even though they're increasing short-term interest rates and making it harder for people to borrow money and use to buy things they don't need. But when people got jobs and they're getting raises on those jobs and it's not hard for them to find a new job, guess what? 
they keep spending. They just keep spending out of the income that they're making as opposed to going to a bank and borrowing money to spend. So really, the Fed wants companies to feel the pain as well. And they're going to keep raising short-term interest rates because they know when money gets too expensive for companies to borrow cheaply, companies do what? They stop borrowing. And when most companies stop borrowing, they don't have money to expand and grow and do R&D and ultimately make more profit. See, a lot of these companies use that cheap money that they borrow in order to fuel growth. But when money's too expensive to borrow, companies just shut down. They don't, they don't try to expand. They don't try to grow. And when they don't grow or expand, they start laying off people. And there it is. Uh, I got this one other um, clip that's uh, really pretty good. Uh, uh, two more clips, actually. Um, this is a good one. Uh, this explains uh, the blanking collapse really well. Three major banks in the United States have failed in a short period of time. Silvergate, Signature Bank, and Silicon Valley Bank. Now, Silvergate was the smallest with about $11 billion in assets. Signature was like the mid-sized one, and Silicon Valley Bank was the largest. Now, Silvergate and Signature Bank were well-known in the crypto space, while Silicon Valley Bank was massive in the tech startup world. However, despite their differences, these banks failed for similar reasons at a high level, which is this. They all experienced a run on the banks when too many people demand too much money too fast and the banks don't have cash on hand. Now, I want to make something clear. It would be easy to draw the comparison to the crypto crash in 2022 when several crypto companies like FTX collapsed, but there's an important difference. Companies like FTX were insolvent. When there was a run on their banks, they had no money to give. Whereas the banks we're talking about were illiquid, meaning they had the money, but when they had the bank run, some of it was locked up in long-term assets like bonds. Now, to be clear, these are not the same things at all. But things can get a little fuzzy in the details. For example, when a bank run happens, what can start as a liquidity problem can become an insolvency problem if the bank has to sell what they have for cash. And let me explain. One of the safest investments is considered to be treasury bonds. Your grandparents probably invest in it. Banks invest in them, both for the same reason. They, they provide a stable rate of return. So say you're signature bank, right? You've got billions of dollars in customer assets. Where do you put it? Well, into treasury bonds, which let's say earn you 1% a year. You keep some cash on hand for withdrawals, but you figure, look, if I need to sell these, I can sell my bonds, right? But what happens if interest rates rise really quickly? Well, suddenly you have this five-year bond you bought a year ago, which gives you 1% a year. But now the government is selling the same five-year bond and offering 5%. Because of that, now your bond's value on the open market drops. It's no longer even worth what you paid for it because it's giving less interest than other bonds. And so if you try to sell that, well, now you lose money. Now, to be clear, if you held the bond to maturity, well, you would still make that 1% and not lose anything. But when depositors are asking for cash, it's simply not an option to hold on. Now, I know that seems complicated, but the essence of it is this. 
banks were forced to sell long-term assets that they didn't want to sell, like bonds, and they took losses because of these bank runs. Because of that, what started as a liquidity crisis became an insolvency crisis, and that's why they got shut down, because they weren't going to be able to service all those withdrawals. So now what, right? Doesn't the government guarantee bank deposits? Why are we even talking about this? Well, they kind of do. The FDIC insures up to $250,000 per account. However, at places like Silicon Valley Bank, they had a lot of accounts with a lot more than that. Because as Roku, Roku is one of them, by the way, like with 470 something million dollars. But uh, yeah, you get the idea. See, you know, you buy a, a five year uh, note and you're guaranteed to get 1% return on that investment. You can count on that. Now, no one's going to, if anyone, if anyone's asking you for money, you're not going to touch that note. Um, basically, you leave that in and you'll get your return on that investment as guaranteed. But if you're a bank and people are asking you to liquidate, um, then you have to sell that note prematurely. And that's when trouble comes into paradise for these banks. All right. So this is one, one, uh, one more. Um, this is a guy that specializes in the used car and the automobile markets. And he gives a really good analysis of, uh, the, uh, economy, uh, in addition to why it is that, uh, car prices are so high in an economy like this. It makes sense out of a market that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Let's face it. As a consumer in today's automobile market, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Inventory is low. Prices are high. Interest rates keep going up. And finance terms are longer than they have ever been. Payments are higher than they've ever been. Sales, at least on the retail side of things, are stagnant or slightly down. So, yet, used car prices are going higher with no end in sight. One has to think, how can that be? How is this possible? How, how can it continue? Well, let's go back to the root cause. The root cause was COVID and the initial shutdowns. Sales stopped overnight. Dealerships temporarily suddenly closed. Manufacturers shut down factories, stopped production, and most importantly, canceled existing microchip orders. The chip manufacturers turn their production to higher profit margin new chips and the potential for inventory shortages was born. Dealerships reopened, sales were much better than expected, and the manufacturers ran out of the chips that they needed because, well, they canceled those orders much too quickly. When demand suddenly outstrips supply, panic set in, and consumers decided to overpay for what was available out of the fear of missing out. Manufacturers and dealers saw an opportunity to make new cars more expensive, higher profit margin vehicles for a smaller segment of the well-heeled buyers who were still willing to buy the new cars. Less production meant less sales, producing fewer trade-ins, which caused used car supplies to dwindle, which resulted in skyrocketing retail prices. This happened in 2021, and it appears to be happening again today. 
So how do we make sense of this? How do we navigate this market? Conventional wisdom suggests to wait it out until the market reverts to historical norms. Perhaps, just perhaps, having spoken to the number of people that I have in the industry, perhaps conventional wisdom is wrong. Pops, we are super excited. Car Edge Insurance. What is it? What do we need to know? <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> you threw a commercial in there. Um, but here's the, the, the rest of that. Perhaps because of the 15 to 18 million new cars that were lost to production globally in the last three years, that it will be a decade or more before we revert back to historical norms. So he's saying that this, this, this problem with the car prices could very well be a 10-year. I don't think it's going to go that long, but still it's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite um, gloomy, you know, it's gloomy. So um, in any case, I also wanted to play uh, uh, one other clip from uh, related to the banking crisis uh, that Tucker put out yesterday. Let's take a listen. On Friday, as you know, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, failed. That became the second largest bank failure in American history. Then on Sunday, authorities took over Signature Bank in New York. That became the third largest bank failure in American history. Then today, shortly after the markets opened, trading in several regional banks had to be halted. Western Alliance was down almost 80%. First Republic, which, of course, Jim Cramer endorsed just a few days ago on CNBC. <laughs> that was down nearly 70%. Jim Cramer's always welcome to come on this show for amusement purposes. PacWest, down 50%. Comerica, down 40%, and so on. So there was panic, of course, reflected in markets, and it wasn't just regional banks that were affected. For a while this morning, you could not even trade stock in Charles Schwab, venerable Charles Schwab. Schwab went down 25% and tripped a circuit breaker. That's bad. In fact, that kind of panic could quickly, conceivably, become a catastrophe. So on the brink of catastrophe, you need one thing, strong, competent leadership. But we don't have that. We have Joe Biden. Today, he shuffled out to the podium and announced a bailout. I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. All right. So the money the Biden administration is using for this bailout apparently is coming from the FDIC. So the feds have it covered. Don't worry about the details. Everything's totally fine. Hold on. Slow down, pal. How did this happen? Can we get an explanation for that? Don't we have regulators? And how did those regulators, since we're pretty confident they exist and taking big salaries, how did they miss the fact that SVB was insolvent apparently for months and not in some complex credit default swap way? You're going to spend 5,000 words trying to understand, but in a really simple way that's easy to understand. Their liabilities were bigger than their assets. It's very simple. How did nobody notice that? The people who were paid to notice it. Well, Joe Biden unfortunately answered none of those questions. He just ran for the door. He did. 
And Credit Suisse uh, is yet another, is going to be another uh, bank, a big bank, that is uh, going to suffer, you know, or see some serious, serious business. Well, you know, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher wrote this. She said, global warming provides a marvelous excuse for global socialism. I uh, I definitely could agree with that. So um, back to politics a little bit. Glenn Greenwald says Trump populism or populists are the primary anti-war group left in America and that the Russia gate hoax convinced Democrats to support World War Three. The predominant reason for the core and crux of the Democratic Party is so willing to be so devoted to Russia's destruction is because of their residual anger over the... See, this is a good point here to be made. I think that um, what what has happened in some part is that the Democrats believe their own lie from the Russian hoax to the point where they are having to make good on Russia bad. Like... It's almost the same thing as they had to make good on Orange Man bed. They had to do all that. So uh, it says here, this is NATO's war, not Ukraine's war. U.S. made a decision to create a Russia-phobic hornet's nest at the borders and to arm Kiev regime under the smokescreen of Minsk Minsk agreements. Not all Americans support sending weapons to kill civilians in Donbass. Some brave... Some brave of them protest. Uh, most don't. All right. So I want to take a listen to this really quick. You look at the Republican establishment, why they're so supportive of Biden's war policies and are saying we need to fight until the very end and that maximalist rhetoric, even though their own base is increasingly questioning the wisdom of that. You know, why are we spending so much time, attention, and money on a region that doesn't actually affect our lives? I think for them, it's just kind of this instinctive foreign policy doctrine that the U.S. rules the world, that we should rule the world, that Russia is our enemy for some reason that nobody can articulate. That was Trump's point. And we have a chance to weaken Russia and for some reason should do that. Just I'm not sure why, but they always want to weaken U.S. adversaries. That's their view of the world. But I actually think that while Democrats also share that fundamental foreign policy, a major reason, I would say the predominant reason why the core and crux of the Democratic Party is so willing to be so devoted to Russia's destruction is because of their residual anger over their perceived role that Russia played in defeating Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election and the... The Russian hoax. That's what he's in essence saying. We're running out of time, but be sure to check out org. Find out how we're advancing America First policies to make America great again. Make a donation if you can. Use Red State over at mypillow.com, and we'll see you next time. Just to bury my kids right on up the, the radio. Fire, buddy. Day.